welcome to Redemption Tempe's podcast. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors of Redemption Tempe, and it is good to be connecting with you over the airwaves as you drive around, jog, lift weights, clean dishes, whatever you're doing. We know that all of life is all for Jesus. And uh, we are continuing in this podcast to reflect on our series in Exodus and where we uh, think about the ways in which God delivers his people and how he delivered his people out of the tyranny of Pharaoh and um, brought him into union and connection with himself. And so this last week, Ricardo preached on Exodus 15, this beautiful song that comes after God's people had been uh, crossed through the sea and had been delivered from Pharaoh. And we get this sense that in this momentous uh, point of their life, it was it could only be commemorated uh, by the potency of song. That God's people from the beginning have been singing our faith and, and praise to our God and to remind one another of who he is, his faithfulness and his goodness. And we see that in Exodus 15. And so we thought since we're on the heels of reflecting on uh, music and the formative role that music has in the life of God's people, that we would bring a musician on for the podcast. So I recently recorded this interview with Sho Baraka. Now, some of you probably know who he is. Some of you don't. Uh, Sho is a, he's a lot of things. He wears a lot of hats. Most people know him as a rapper, a musician, but he has also helped uh, produce film and television shows. He um, currently working on and writing a musical and writing a book. And the musical is performed in various places. And he leads a, a group of, of creative, innovative, uh, a network of creativity and innovation in Atlanta called the Terminus Collective. I have a lot of respect for him. And some of his music has been really formative in my life. And so we thought it would be good if we did an interview with him and just asked him questions about creativity, about music, about the unique role of the imagination and for music to form people and to help us to live all of life, all for Jesus. So let's listen in now and hear Sho Baraka reflect on these important things. So I'm here with Sho Baraka, someone who... He may not even know it, but he has had a ton of influence on us here in the Phoenix area. He came out and spoke at a Surge lunch and at a Redemption Tempe event a few years ago. And through his music, through his art, through his speaking, through and campaign stuff, is uh, his influence is ricocheting around the Phoenix era area. So, show thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, uh, Jim, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, well. We want to just jump in and uh, ask you some rapid fire questions, some quick little questions, just so that people can get, can get a little personal snapshot of you. So outside of of the Bible, what has been the most influential book? One book that I love was Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro. Is That book is, mm. is a nonfiction piece that just talks about the um, some of the obstacles that presented itself after the reconstruction period and going into kind of like industrialization 
for African-Americans. But I think there's a lot of correlation to how do you educate individuals who are at one point in time marginalized or who have limited resources, but then they try to go back to their own communities and people to try to uplift that community while at the same time they've learned in areas or they've been schooled um, by people who aren't indigenous to them, to their community, if that makes sense. So I think that is a lot of correlation to the Christian walk where a lot of people I know and even myself at some point in time probably came to faith in some main uh, in, in white evangelical spaces mm-hmm. and they were excited about their faith and then they went back to their own communities and probably were miseducated in how to use that information in a way that was acc- uh, uh, applicable for for that context, if, if you will. So that book is probably, yeah, that probably is the one. And then if I can go with it, if I can cheat a little bit and say fiction, yeah. um, I just love, oh gosh, there's too many, but I'll just, I'll just go with a, a very cheap answer. I'm gonna go with Lord of the Rings. <laughs> nice, nice. Now you got a fiction related podcast that just launched, right? Yeah, I just, I love fiction. I love reading fiction. Man, I've been trying to read fiction forever. One <laughs> one book a year, and it's it's one of those things like baseball where I like the idea of it, but I just can't <laughs> like the actual thing. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, what about uh, – and by the way, what's the name of that podcast? It Was Written. It's myself yeah. and Tyreek Wesley. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, what about a place, a physical location – that has shaped you and helped to make you who you are? So I'm gonna go with uh, Tuskegee University. Um, it's, the, it's the first uh, first university I went to. Um, that's where I became a Christian. Uh, it's a HBCU, Historically Black College and University. And so while I was there, I learned not only a lot about myself, but I learned a lot about um, the black community and how diverse it is and how different we are. Oftentimes we think of black people and we just think of them as this homogenous group, but uh, it was the first time I met black folks from Alaska, black people from, you know, different countries, black people with very different beliefs than I had or knew that we can even have as black people. Mm. (laughs) So Tuskegee, but then, like I said, it it was a place where I came to faith. Uh, My best friends uh, to this day went to school there with me um, that, ministry that I was a part of there to which helped me come to faith, led me to meet my wife as well, who went to a school in Alabama. So I will say Tuskegee University is probably one of the locations that had the greatest impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a small fascination or probably a large fascination with George Washington Carver. So, Uh-oh. so I'm familiar. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, what What's a, small thing that you do on a regular basis that significantly impacts the fruitfulness of your work? This is a good question. Something I do regularly. Well, the easiest answer is that I read a lot of fiction. So I, I, I imagine a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I read a lot of fiction. I listen to a lot of poetry. I, I read a lot of poetry. I listen to a lot of music. And music is, you know, just various types of genres. And so those two, and the one commonality in all of them is just imagination, I think. Mm, That's good. 
And tell us a little bit about uh, the different hats you wear, the different irons in the fire. I am uh, I am always baffled when I hear about the new projects that you have going on and how even different they are. So most people probably know you as a rapper, a musician, but tell us about some of the other stuff that you have going on. I am um, at Creative by Trade, if you will. Mm. So... I used to just say I was an artist or a rapper, but because I felt like that was limiting um, and uh, somewhat of a of a handicap, if you will, when you talk to certain people, mm. um, because they have certain expectations that come along with being a rapper. And then when you start talking about, well, you know, I write, then they don't take you seriously. It's like, well, I don't really think rappers write. So, mm. <laughs> so I've kind of said that, you know what, I'm a creative. And so what that means to me is like, I try to engage in, creating content or using my imagination in various different ways and how that's played out for me. I've, I've acted in feature films. I've directed, um, I guess you could say music videos, short films, mm -hmm. curriculum. I've written a lot. So whether that be uh, articles, essays, uh, forwards, um, and curriculums, but I'm also about to write my own book for the, so I've just signed a deal. So this will be the first time um, I'll be publishing my own work. Uh, I write music. What's that book about? The book is about the intersection of, of vocation, imagination, and, and, and faith. Oh, so man. How has, uh, yeah, just how have people in, in history and, 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 and today use their imagination and creative ways to bring blessings to the world? That is fantastic. Yeah. And so, and I'm also writing a musical right now. So there's a lot of things that I guess you could say, I'm sure I left something out. I produce, uh, oh, I also produce shows for people. Right now I've been, um, had the opportunity to produce a show on uh, for Dominique Wilkins. Mm, really? Well, yeah. And so it's things like that is, um, uh, you know, the Lord has presented great opportunities for me to use my creativity in a way that I think is is bringing some sort of joy to the world. That's incredible. I think uh, Dominique Wilkins was a triangle offense away from being like a top five player. In the whole, I mean, you know, uh, let him tell you. Uh, he, he would agree. He would agree with you. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about the musical, too. We can't just let that slide. Like, that's really intriguing. So, <clears throat> yeah, musicals, because of, you know, Hamilton, I think there's there's been a space that's been opened up for um, hip-hop artists and folks who, um, who probably don't consume hip-hop or pop or urban music regularly to engage in more urban kind of like a, a communication in the form of plays and musical, even though they've been, people have been producing plays and musicals for a long time, but with using urban music. But I think because of that, um, it was a catalyzer for myself and a, an individual that you may know and other folks who listen to your podcast may know named Greg Thompson. Mm-hmm. We partnered together uh, on a project that started off as something much smaller than a musical. It just started off as a 
kind of like a musical engagement to bring awareness to Claiborne Temple, which is a space in Memphis, Tennessee, that was a gathering location, kind of like a nexus for a lot of the uh, the civil rights movement, especially around the sanitation workers strike in 1968. Right. The one thing that people know about that event or that time period is that Martin Luther King died in Memphis in 1968, but most folks don't know why he died or why he was down there. Mm-hmm. He was down there because of the sanitation workers strike. Um, and one of the key figures of that strike was Reverend James Lawson. And so we're really telling a story about Lawson, the sanitation workers and a family and uh, King, although he's, in the play, he's not the center of the play, nor is he the focus of the play. It's really about economic uh, justice and racial justice and uh, how the church and other individuals who orbited the, the sanitation workers came together to bring, um, or tried to bring, better yet, uh, a solution to the problems that these men were facing. Yeah. What would we have to do to get that out in, uh, in Phoenix? You would have to reach out to Greg Thompson or Anasa Troutman, and uh, all right, and, and we'll figure out how to get that information to you because I don't know it off the top of my head. But there's a site. I think the site is unionthemusical.com, and you can go on there, and there's information on how to get in contact with us and um, bring the play to your city. Uh, we we're we're traveling it. We've performed it a couple times. Uh, in different cities, uh, and it's been highly successful. It's been a blessing. That's what I've heard. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, man, it's, it's been it's been great. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to it. Um, well, uh, let me ask a little bit more about your work. Um, on a broader sense, I think it's always helpful for people to understand how others kind of came to discover their gifts, their calling, those sorts of things. What would you say were some key moments for you? where there was some clarity about the trajectory of your life and your, your work as a creative? I think it starts, you know, with your parents and your household, you mm. know, we, my parents created a space for, I guess you can say just to cultivate um, creativity and imagination and different children use it in different ways. And for me, I was just fortunate enough to, to be able to, to take a hold of, you know, the readings that they would offer us, the kind of like the musical opportunities they would offer us. My older brother was into hip hop and rapped a lot. And so I followed his footsteps. And when I got to about high school, um, met some individuals who were like-minded, kindred in their love for creativity and music. And so we formed a group and that catalyzed it some more. When I got to college, um, there were different hip-hop groups that really influenced the way that I saw hip-hop as a resource for changing the world. And the Cross Movement was one of those groups and got a chance to meet those individuals and kind of like walk alongside them as someone who was, I guess you could say, mentored by not only their their craft and their skills, but by their life. And from there, it was just failing 
at trying to run away from being a creative. I studied film and television, but at one point in time, I thought it was going to be a business major. My, my, my family played a lot of sports. So when I realized I probably wasn't going to go to the NFL like my father, I said, well, I can be Jerry Maguire and be a, an agent. Mm-hmm. And that didn't quite work. And then I was like, well, let me work in psychology. And that just quite wasn't my thing. And then I thought about doing full-time ministry. And then I was like, well, I don't want to raise support for, for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so it was just, just creativity just kept creeping up on me. I think the thing that I had to reconcile was how do I do this and and keep a heart that's saturated in the gospel? Because I just didn't know a lot of people who were openly... Um, just tenacious about seeking the Lord's face while at the same time wanting to have influence, not just in Christian spaces. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think for me, it was the tension of, well, do I only belong in a Christian space or has the, the Lord given me liberty to explore all of his globe to make great art? And so yeah. those are the, those are the questions that I wrestled with some that I'm answered that I've answered um, some things that I'll be talking about in my book, obviously, as well. What if someone came up to you and said that creativity, imagination, those are not as important as the rational aspects of your mind? No one explicitly says that, but functionally, that's kind of how we live it out in a post-enlightenment world. What would you say, what would be your case for creativity and imagination, not just in the lives of artists, but uh, as a integral yeah. aspect of being human, I think we, you know, it's, it's obvious that we are built different. People are created different. Therefore, we learn different. Uh-huh. Uh, we capture ideas, concepts, philosophies different, differently. Mm-hmm. And I think in the way that information is transmitted, uh, also needs diversity mm-hmm. and. So if I get up and I give a lecture about, um, I don't know, love, right? The love of my spouse. It'll definitely go over well for many, many people. But if I took those same, that's those same concepts, those same, same principles, and I put it on a canvas or I put it to song or I put it to, you know, a, a metric system of poetry or something... There are going to be some people who it lives longer within them than just listening to a sermon or to a message. Yeah, yeah. And so therefore, I think, yeah, the creativity doesn't omit rationality. It doesn't omit truth. It just explores it in different ways. It bends it. It 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 it, it, it flirts with uh, the expanding of it in in in, a, in multiple ways and. I think art becomes becomes a problem when we begin to manipulate, I guess you can say, the truth of the message versus expanding the truth in a way that helps people grasp it from a different angle. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah, go. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, what we, what have you learned in your process of, of cultivating creativity that you think is transferable to everyone? Like, like first of all, how do you cultivate your craft and cultivate and grow in creativity? And what do you think that uh, you've, you've learned that other people should engage in if they really wanted to grow in that way? 
I think people <clears throat> think we, we, we cultivate it differently and, and everybody's process is, you know, can go from, you know, very bland to quite eccentric. And so for me, I, I fluctuate between sometimes I just, I just need to sit in a, in a, in a space and just force myself to write and think and to, to be productive. And there are other times where I need to be quite eccentric and I just need to go out and just walk around and, engage nature and to do things and that way for me just being in the presence of God's creation cultivates in me these ideas of wanting to uh myself create and so uh but I also but I the one thing I I think is important is that people need to be content or they need to be uh comfortable with with living in their own head mm-hmm. and and exploring the the deep insecurities of of themselves and pulling those things out like for me because there's no way you're going to get past uh your there's no way you're going to create and be productive in your creativity unless you deal with your insecurities and address them and look at them face to face and say you know this is what I'm insecure about but Let's deal with it. Let's put it out there. Let's let's figure out how to manipulate this, create this this insecurity, to to make something beautiful. And mm. so I think you need to know yourself, and you need to you know get in touch with yourself, and then figure out where are the spaces, wh- what are the times, who are the people, what are the ways that bring that that cultivate creativity or cultivate opportunities for me to be uh, imaginative. Mm, that's good. And how would you say having children on the autism spectrum has affected the way that you create? That's something that we have in common, and it's uh, been really sharpening and, and uh, influential in the way that I think um, for me. Uh, and I was just curious yeah. what that's looked like for you. It's made me realize that there are people respond to different sensor, like, like we all have different sensory sensitivities that are mm. heightened and some that are muted. Mm. And for me, as I create, I realize that sometimes it's not just always the word. It could be the movement, right? That can, it could be mm. a sound. It can be a light. It can be a texture. And so um, people respond just like as we talked about, like people respond to the written or the spoken word differently. I think people respond to different sensories, like senses. They respond in, they respond with, uh, they have different responses that um, that are heightened because of how art is or how things are delivered. And so, and having boys in, on the spectrum, I know like one son loves the way things feels and another mm. son loves sound. And... I think people are like that. It's just ours are not as heightened as theirs, right? Or, and we don't yeah. have these little small idiosyncrasies that come along with them. Or if we do, we just know how to hide them better. We know how to disguise it better um, to be more socially acceptable. Yeah. And for with art, I think you know you get certain sensations and feelings by things that you see or you engage. And I think what it's taught me is when I perform, especially on stage, that there's a way to use all of these senses 
that can get a response out of people and that can impact people and touch people um, and not just lean on just the spoken word. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think music does differently than other forms of communication, other forms of, of art? Like what's the unique role of music in the flourishing of God's world? It just seems more, it seems safer, right? I can mm. say something very demonstrative and incendiary uh, without music and people are just like, oh my gosh, mm. terrible. I can say something, I can say those same thoughts and words and put it to beautiful music. And then we, it, it just, it, it disarms us just a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. You, may still, you you may still say I don't know if I quite agree with that, but the way that it was communicated and the beauty behind it and the texture, you know, it's not that it's not as offensive as it once was. Mm. So um, I think that's one thing, and then also I just thought music is a universal language. It's just a language that everybody speaks, right? Mm. Um, I was in Spain this week, and it was so interesting um, that that though I don't speak much of any Spanish at all, that when we were in like a taxi, the one thing that I did understand is the music that they played. Because for the most part, that's one thing that we connected on. Um, yeah. Though some of the songs that were played were in English and other were others were in Spanish, the rhythm and the beat, we can all understand like, oh, this is meant to bring us together to enjoy to dance to to vibe and uh i think that's something that is very unifying is that music unifies people in ways that uh, that maybe sermons and messages can't like even when you go to church or you worship internationally people sing songs and uh you can see hands raised and folks have no idea what the songs are being what the song is being said but yeah I actually was in london not too long ago and there were like a bunch of missionaries from different countries and what they did was they sung one song but they sung it in like almost two do- dozen different languages and each language was led by a person from that particular nationality beautiful and it was it was one of the most amazing experiences i've ever had yeah and so that person would lead the song but it would have the same rhythm pretty much the same cadence, but it was different lyrics. And you knew what you were singing, but it was just beautiful to hear their tongue proclaiming the truths of God. Uh, and it was just it was just a wonderful experience. I bet, I bet. Yeah, I think one of the other things that's notable is the ability for music to etch itself into your memory and be carried with you throughout the day. I mean, I, yeah. I bet it's a, a crazy experience because I've had multiple days where your songs have been ricocheting around my head all day long. Uh, but I've never had that really with any sort of uh, non-musical, non-artistic speech where there's just a line that's over and over again that sticks with you. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing with stories. This is why people remember stories and stories stick with you. Like, you know mm-hmm. the story... Because um, you can remember the beginning, the you know the inciting incident, the untying of the knot, and the conclusion, and you, you it sticks with you like man, this was a great story. Um, so yeah, I mean, art has a wonderful way of sticking is sticking with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the things 
for me that was stuck in my head was uh, the song Piano Break. Yes. Um, especially the days right after uh, the 2016 election. Um, it was interesting. There was something that was kind of comforting to the reality of, a, um, I don't know, putting into words the craziness of this world. Yeah. Uh, and the... Uh, in the in the 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 steadfast goodness of of god uh so what i want to do now i like to ask some kind of crazy questions um i i would love to walk through your last couple albums and um if if we could if i could name the album and then you could just tell me um who is the neighbor that you were trying to love to care for in the writing of that album you know i think a lot of times when we hear the Jesus's command to love your neighbor as yourself. It's often caught up in the ethereal. It's uh, yeah. conveyed as just do nice things. But when it gets tied to the nitty gritty of what we produce and, and our work, I think that's when it's really potent. So uh, let's take the album Talented Tenth. We'll just do the last couple. Who were the neighbors you were trying to love with that album? So what's the album about? And then uh, who are you seeking to love through that? Got you. So the album was about, so the concept of the Talented 10th was a concept of philosophy made popular by, by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, which was to have the top 10%, if you will, of a particular people to use their talent and their resources to educate the rest, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of feels elitist, but... Um, it's really about how do we get people who have resource, who have opportunity, who have education to use their gifting for the blessing and the pulling up of other folks. And um, it really actually started out of a missionary organization um, for a concept of discipleship. And so when I you know, read and studied Du Bois in college and came back to this concept years after I graduated, I was like, man, this is a very strong biblical idea. It's like, you disciple people so that they can disciple others, right? You, the whole idea mm -hmm. of concept of using your gifting for the benefit of other people. And I wanted to make this album specifically not only about how do we use your time, talent, and treasure for the benefit of other people, but also how do we uplift and make notable Black folks in history, like Black Christian history. Because before mm -hmm. that, um, most of my music uh, either lauded or praised uh, white evangelicals of, of present day or the past. And every now and then I would mention black folks in history. Um, but I was just like, you know, and this answers your second part of the question, who was the neighbor? I realized that when I went back to my old neighborhood where I grew up and people who knew my music, they were like, oh man, that's cool. But it's, you know, th there was just this, incompleteness about their critique or their praise that I was just like, you know what, I, I guess what they're saying is that that album just quite didn't talk about them or they felt like I was more speaking at them than having a conversation. And I was teaching mm. them a history of people that they felt like, oh, it's cool, but where's our history? And mm. I realized that my history, literally my growing up in the household I grew up, the schools that I went to, the college education that I got, put me in a perfect place to be that particular storyteller. And so mm. I made this album for not only those folks 
that needed to know, is God faithful in my history? Is he faithful now? But what can he do for my future? Um, And so that's who I made that album for. How about the narrative? Um, this, I, this answer is going to disappoint you, but it's the same thing, man. I really, <laughs> I, uh, I think about, you know, it's funny. I think about the, especially my last two or three albums. I think about who are the type of people that I want to be at my, like, I want to come to my shows. And for the most part, there are people like me who are in this stage of life. I, I will say maybe 20 something to late twenties to like forties. Who, uh, who, who are either Christians or people who are seeking some sort of spiritual truth and are mm-hmm. willing to reconcile and, and wrestle with the idea of spirituality um, and mm-hmm. people who have a deep concern with the problems of the world and they believe that there are answers to it through our spiritual walk. And if that's, if, and that's, Pretty much the folks that I felt like my previous album, uh, Talented Tenth, was aimed to. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, I think those two albums are like cousins, if you will. Yeah, brother, yeah. Brother, yeah. Brothers better. Yeah, brothers are better. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so tell us about the album So Many Feelings. And uh, who who is that seeking to love? So that album was a... That was for my neighbor, my married neighbors. Or um, so, if I live on a cul-de-sac, <laughs> the people mm-hmm. to my right are my married neighbors. Um, the people on my left are the young couple who just got married, and um, mm-hmm. then there's some people who are thinking about moving in, and they're single, but they're trying to figure out is this marriage thing really worth it. And so all mm. those folks in my cul-de-sac, that album was for them. It was a an album that talked about the joys and the lows of marriage. And I tried to be very real and very truthful about how marriage is, seems to be very beneficial and how at times it can seem like it's something that is archaic and like troublesome. But at the mm. end of it all, I think... Um, we come to a point to where we celebrate an anniversary and we realize that it's worth all the, the fighting it's worth all the, the labor that we've put into it. And so, uh, yep. Yeah. That's good. All right. So I'm going to ask you about a few okay. songs and uh, this is a little crazy hypothetical here. Um, but if this one song could only be heard by one person in the world, it could be anyone throughout history. Who would you want it to be? So let's start with the piano break, 33 AD. If it, if, if it was like the Wu-Tang album that came out a few years ago that only one person <laughs> could hear, but you could choose who that is, who would it be? Oh, gosh. This is a, that's a deep question. Piano break? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know of a... I can't think of a person, but I can think of a type of person. Somebody who... Sure. Someone sure. who's deeply influential, but deeply humanistic, who thinks that that human beings are the arbiters of all that is good, and um, mm. yeah, 
they're probably an academic or some sort of writer but yeah that's that's the person i would love to listen and to talk about the song with yeah how about the the song words 2006 oh i would have loved for my wife and i to listen to that song when we the 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 day we had the diagnosis of our son yeah yeah Mm. how about um maybe both 1865 let's go with lyndon b johnson Uh (laughs) wow yeah i like it and why him um he he, you know i think the song talks about uh political posturing for your own personal benefit and i and i think there are things that he did that you know could be a you know could be seen as a blessing for certain people and other things that he did that were very that were had high self-interest and he's just a first name that i thought of but i could you know you can go to many people i can go to yeah abraham lincoln george washington i can go to donald trump i can you know I even throw obama in there. i mean you know there's so many people you can throw in there um but sure. I, I think Lyndon b johnson and Nixon were, were were two individuals in a time period, and I think where there was high racial tension, lots of war, lots of, um, oh, I guess you could say, um, it just seemed like there was a lot of political movement, not only nationally but globally, and sometimes you have to make really tough decisions, and um, and those decisions can be politically polarizing. Um, and is it, it's helpful to understand the blessing and the curse of both sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just imagining in my mind, Lyndon B. Johnson sitting there listening to the song. I'm, I'm liking that picture. <laughs> um, so one of the things I've noticed is that, uh, that you have been willing to take risks and to, uh, make creative risks, lean into controversial subject matter. And I think with a lot of my, fo- a lot of the folks who are listening to this podcast, they are wrestling with a risk that they need to take for vocational faithfulness. And I wonder what you would say to them. What, w- what would be your, your wisdom, your advice, your encouragement, your warning? What would you say? I would say, you know, I think it's wise to be content. I think contentment oftentimes has bad marketing and bad PR. Um, I think Chesterton has one of the greatest quotes around contentment where he says, um, it ought to mean in English that as it does in France is not to be reserved to an addict, but to find all that is beautiful about your current condition in the addict. And, um, however, you know, there's a point to which mm. complacency, mm. our contentment becomes complacency, right? And you can offer the world and yourself so much more. And so mm-hmm. I would say taking risks are very healthy. And um, I think it gives, it breathes new life in us. And I would encourage folks to just trust God in that no matter what decision you make, I think that there's always the beauty of grace on the other end of that, right? Um, I think the risk that I took 
Um, mm -hmm. It's made me a greater person. It's made me a person who understands the world more deeply. It makes me I understand myself better. Uh, I understand obstacles and challenges better. And then the other thing about taking risk is that mm. it, it makes the next risk a little easier to take because you you've 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 experiences you experience God's faithfulness, right? And um, it's a good question, but I, I will say, mm. you know, yeah. waking up every day believing in God and yeah, just believing and trusting in God that he will provide is the safest place to be, even though you're, you're going to take risks. So at the end of the day, I don't even know if that makes sense. At the end of the day, risk aren't risk because we're in the safest place we can be. And that's in the will of God, if that makes sense. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So I like to end with a, a crazy hypothetical question. So uh, we'll go ahead and do that now. Um, we're about to head into the 2020 election season. And uh, it looks like it's going to be at least maybe even more uh, chaotic and controversial than uh, 2016, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, honestly, we are praying that, um, you know, many of the leaders around here that we would um, be courageous and wise and that we would do better than we did in 2016, basically. And uh, so I want you to imagine that you could put together an advisory board for the American church, all aspects of the American church, an advisory board uh, from history. I know that you have a deep and broad historic um, understanding. So if you could put together an advisory board of three to four people that could just help lead American Christians through this season. And you can pull from any time in history or present day. Who would you have us listen to? Oh, gosh. You asked the deepest questions. <laughs> <laughs> My wife basically said I had to start a podcast because she's tired of me asking her those questions. So. <laughs> okay. Well, good for you. Good for her. Yeah. We're getting the brunt of these. I'm trying to think of just people I love in history. I think Fannie Lou Hamer is one person. Mm. Um, just her deep compassion for people. Um, but at the same time, her, her heart for justice mm -hmm. and, uh, just the experiences she went through personally, um, and that she has some political history mm -hmm. and acumen. I think Fannie Lou Hamer is one person. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> I would say... The second individual, uh, oh, I got, I just came up with two other people real quick and I don't, but I had a third person. Mm -hmm. I had someone else. So I'm going to, I'm going to go in between these two people. You said three people, right? Yeah, you can put as many as you want on there. Right, I'm, I'm going to go with four. All right. Sounds so good. The easy, the, the easy two, uh, the next two, uh, Frederick Douglass and, mm. um, William Lloyd Garrison. And so just the the wisdom and the the fortitude that they had as individuals and i think they were just so ahead of their time when it came to the concerns of the rights of people and um that they weren't just talking about it that they put their lives on the line for these things i think 
were, mm. and they just loved the Lord and they had wisdom um, on how to to make the, the 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 things that they believed in faith applicable to everyday life and and to politics. Um, and then the fourth person, I'm just gonna go with four. The fourth person mm-hmm. I'm gonna throw in there is Dave Chappelle, comedian, because yeah. we, we need somebody who's not gonna take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to make everybody laugh. And someone who's not afraid to uh, get everybody upset and say some things that's going to make people um, aggravated and agitate and to be incendiary. And yeah, I just, I I feel like he, he would be, he would be a perfect um, communications aid. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Well, hey, man, I'm really appreciative of the work that you that you do and uh, being on this podcast. And uh, hopefully we can pull together that advisory board. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast. Where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.